Exodus chapter 20, you shall not steal. Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 17. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Christ. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your, attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin, and do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. If you've been with us over the last few months in working through these commandments, I think if we're all honest, it's not been easy, has it, to look at them. Uh, it's been uh, challenging to see the breadth of God's commandments in just how expansive they are, referring not just to our actions, but to our thoughts and our hearts. And also, it's been challenging to see the depth of the sin in our own hearts. Um, I was thinking, what picture would we use to express this? Maybe um, it's felt like extended dental work there in the chair as the dentist works on a particular problem with your teeth, or, or maybe like a particularly hard run or a gym session, whatever in your mind is something that's very, very hard to do and painful to do. It's been a bit like that, hasn't it? Don't forget that's a good thing. Don't want to move away from that point. God has been showing us our hearts so that we might see our need of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we know Jesus Christ by faith, he is showing us what it means to live in holiness, what it means to walk, because the Lord Jesus Christ kept all of this law perfectly. And if we want to be like Christ, then we will seek to follow these commandments as well as God's people. But perhaps, maybe having gone through the last few weeks and months and felt the pain of that, as we come to the eighth commandment, maybe like me, you anticipated a bit of a breather this week. 
because, you know, um, uh, we're here and uh, we don't steal. Um, we don't, uh, we're not burglars, we're not shoplifters. Um, this isn't us. We don't steal cars. Uh, and perhaps if you think that way, uh, you'd be in good company because uh, the Barna Research Group uh, did a survey and no less than 86% of adults said they felt they met the requirements of the Eighth Commandment in particular. But I imagine that most of us think that way because we read the commandments very narrowly. So when we hear do not steal, we think of perhaps stealing of goods. But actually, like every other commandment, this commandment is incredibly broad in its meaning. It covers a whole range of things, and we'll come to those in a bit. Both, it covers many things both in telling us what we should not do, but also, and we've seen this week by week, haven't we, it calls us to things that we should do. So even though it's negative, it implies a positive implication. But I want us to begin uh, with the positive this week. Let's begin and see what is positively uh, taught here by this commandment. And we, if we can think here for a second about how each of these commandments is a way of God expressing his authority over particular spheres of life. And we'll see something really positive here. So, for example, in the fifth commandment, God is expressing his authority over family life. In speaking of the relationship between children and parents. In the sixth commandment, God is speaking of his authority over human life. In the seventh, his authority over marriage and relationships. In the ninth, over speech. And in the eighth commandment, the Lord God is declaring his authority over what we might call economic or financial life. He's speaking to us about possessions and work in the broadest sense. And so, in that way, what the Lord God is doing, and this is our first thing we're going to see as we think about the the positive nature of this commandment, is that God is freeing us because he is telling us what what something good we should pursue. He's freeing us and giving us this framework for something good we should pursue because we're first of all going to see that this commandment grounds a biblical view of economic life. It grounds how we interact economically with each other. There are two key ideas implied by this commandment. One idea is that personal property is good. And the other key idea is that work is good. And those two truths ground economic life in that sense. Let's think about them for a second. Personal property is good. Now, why is that implied by this commandment? Well, if we are not to steal the property of others, what does that mean? Well, it means that people can rightly own things. That's a good thing. In fact, personal property is part of God's design. And this idea that that property is a, a good thing, a right thing, flows from a bigger biblical idea of stewardship. And we're going to just talk about this for a second, because as we think about stewardship, we recognize that God has put us in this world and he has made us stewards over this world. And vertically, as we think about how we think about possessions in relation to God, vertically, God has made us stewards of the world that is his. So where do do we see that? Well, um, rather than jump to Genesis, as we might often do, I wanted you to see that from two of the Psalms. So if you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 24 and verse 1, where we have this truth that the Lord owns everything is declared. We read that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it the world and all who live in it. That's Psalm 24 and verse 1. 
So the whole world belongs to God, but God makes us stewards of this creation. And we see that back in Psalm 8. So if you just jump back a few pages in your Bibles to Psalm 8 and verse 6, we read these words. And it's speaking of how uh, God has made uh, mankind and puts people in the world. And then looking at Psalm, Psalm 8 and verse 6, we read, You made them rulers over the works of your hands and put everything under their feet. So this idea of stewardship biblically is that the the world belongs to God, but God entrusts us to care for it. We are made stewards of God's creation. And, And the key thing about a steward is a steward looks after somebody else's property. It's not theirs. They don't own it. They are entrusted to care for it and are accountable for how they do. And we are responsible to God for how we care for his creation. And we all know how stewardship works, because if you've ever borrowed someone's car, you always drive it far more carefully than if it were your own. That's right, isn't it? I hope it is. If no one's nodding, you're not borrowing mine. Yeah? Well, isn't that true? You know, you can see the gap, you're pulling out, and you think, no, that's a bit tight, I won't risk it. But if it was your car, you might have done. We treat borrowed things with more care. And that is how we should treat God's creation. It's entrusted to our care. Vertically, we are stewards and not owners. But here's where personal property comes in. Because God asks us to care for particular parts of his creation. Part of his purpose is to divide up the creation. And this is where property matters. So vertically, everything belongs to God and we're all stewards and we're not owners. But horizontally, as we think about relative to one another, we are given property and money to own and to care for. So we are not accountable for everything, our stewardship of everything in creation. We are particularly accountable for the stewardship of the things that we have been given. So I'm not accountable for the stewardship of my neighbor's house. I can't harm it, but it's not my property. But I am for the things that have been entrusted to my care. And personal property is how God asks us to steward his creation. And the eighth commandment assumes that personal property is a good thing. It's God's purpose. Now, that's really important to say because there are messages from some in our world and sometimes perhaps a misunderstanding among Christians is that property, wealth, money, perhaps even the very idea of ownership is a bad thing. Now, I don't know why uh, we might think that as Christians because if we read the Bible, we see that again and again in the Old Testament and New Testament, godly people have wealth, don't they? So it doesn't really add up, but some Christians think that perhaps because of a misunderstanding of something in the early chapters of Acts, in chapters 2 and 4, where we read, and maybe you know the verses, that you've got the believers there who have everything in common, and they share things in common. And um, some people read that and say, well, were the early Christians practicing a kind of communism or even socialism? But that's not what's going on in Acts 2 and 4. It's clear that the early Christians still had property because they had something to sell when there were needs to meet. What we see in Acts in those early chapters is a spirit of generosity within the church. So first way in which this commandment grounds life economically is that we see that personal property is right and it is part of the way we steward God's creation. The second truth behind this commandment is that work is good. So, we are told not to steal, 
What are we to do, therefore, to provide for our needs? The Bible's answer is we are to work. And we know that in the Bible at the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, God puts mankind in the garden to work it and to care for it. So if you want a verse to ground this, it's Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, and we read these. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. There you have work and stewardship together. So work is a good thing. It's hard because of sin coming into the world, but it's a good thing. And that was why we heard uh, in the second reading, much longer, from Ephesians. And jump onto this if you have a Bible. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28, which makes the explicit contrast between not stealing and pursuing work. So therefore, in Ephesians 4 verse 28, Paul says, Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands. So work is good. And that has big implications for what fills a huge chunk of your week if you're employed. It means, and even if you're not, there are good things to do that are work for you in that sense. It means that work is not an evil to minimize. It is a good to pursue. The goal of life is not to work as little as possible. Maybe You have seen some of those adverts, maybe on social media, or sometimes they're at traffic lights, aren't they? And they say that I work four hours a week and earn thousands of pounds a week. And you think, yeah, no, you don't. (laughs) Or maybe you do, because people sign up to some kind of scheme that you get them to, but I don't know. The point is, that is not something we should pursue. Work is not an evil to minimize, but a good to pursue. It also means that work is not just about earning money. Even if you have sufficient means but still have strength and energy, it is right to pursue a good use of your time. And can I just say something perhaps to the younger generation? Because one of the things that is being noticed is that the younger generation are giving up on work because perhaps there isn't the reward there, they say, or some of the goals they might have for the longer term just seem so far off in terms of property ownership. Now, now we do need to provide a hopeful future for the youth, But if you are young, please do not give up on work. It is a good thing that God has given for our good. Now, one final point as we think about the way in which this commandment grounds economic life, connected to both ideas of the goodness of property and the goodness of work, that then implies that business and wealth creation is a good thing. Profit is not a bad thing. Profit is just a recognition that you have added value to something. Now, there are temptations that come with wealth. We must not idolize it. We must not misuse it. We must not use our wealth to harm others. But wealth and business and all those things are not inherently evil. They are actually parts of stewardship of creation through work. Now, we could say a lot more about this, and we need to, um, we're going to move on in a second, but if you are interested in this subject, can I commend to you this book? It's by Wayne Gruden. It's called Business for the Glory of God, the Bible's Teaching on the Moral Goodness of Business. And if you're in the world of business and you want to think about that question, this is a really helpful book. There are loads more things you could read as well, but he gets you into lots of different interesting avenues to explore. It's a good introduction. So this commandment grounds 
economic life. And in that way, isn't it wonderful to see God's word being so broad in its application? You know, sometimes don't we say, I wish my faith was more relevant day to day. Well, this commandment is very relevant day to day because it grounds economic life. Now, let's go back uh, to think more about the commandment. Here we're going to get back to the detail of that, but I want to see that big picture first. So we're going to come back to you shall not steal and ask now the second question. Why is it wrong to steal? Now, we've laid some foundations and they're going to help us because we see that it's wrong to steal for three reasons. It's wrong to steal because it harms others. In Romans 13, verse 9, when Paul is saying what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself, he lists stealing as one of the sins where we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves. And loving our neighbor means that we are concerned for the good of our neighbor. (coughs) And when we steal our neighbor's property or time or ideas or anything else, what we are doing is we are taking what God has given to them and making it our own. It's also harmful to our neighbor because we can provoke our neighbor to sin in anger, in bitterness, or even violence, rather than helping them to live at peace. So it's wrong to steal because it harms others, but it's also wrong to steal because it harms ourselves, it harms us. That's the second reason it's wrong to steal. In Ephesians 4 and verse 28, there is a contrast there very clearly between do not steal, instead work. And when we steal, we are pursuing gain outside of work. And that means that we are not pursuing the thing that is good for us, that God has given for our good. And if you've ever been unemployed or underemployed, you'll know how hard that can be. I was speaking uh, this week to a friend who has been in a job that's been Uh, not uh, as full uh, as they would have liked and has not been as challenging as they would have liked. And in the Lord's kindness, have opened up an opportunity for a much more interesting, stretching job. And they were saying how thankful they were to move to that because it's a good thing to be employed in that sense. It's a good thing to pursue work. And perhaps here, we might touch on a a question that some people have um, as we think about this issue of stealing, which is the question of gambling. Is it ever right to gamble? Now, the Bible doesn't directly address gambling, but I think, as I think about it personally, I think it's problematic for a Christian. Let me tell you why. We could say it's problematic for a Christian because it's often associated with things which are sinful, whether it's um, debt uh, or, um, or addiction to something in that way that's not a helpful thing, being controlled by it. But even more so, we might say, as we think about gambling, it's opposed to a biblical pattern of work leading to a reward. So it breaks that pattern because we're seeking a reward outside of gainful employment. So for that reason, I don't think it's a good thing for a Christian to pursue. So it's wrong to steal because it harms us. It's wrong to steal because it harms others. But then here's the third reason, and we always have to think vertically, don't we, in terms of God. We thought horizontally with one another, but vertically. Well, here's the third reason it's wrong to steal. It rejects God's provision and God's providence. Because when we steal, we are rejecting how God has distributed property and trying to reshape the board ourselves. Now, as we look at the Bible, we see that God's distribution is not always equal. 
In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, some people have much and others have less. But that is how God has, in, has purpose to do things. And when we need more and we have genuine need, God has given the means of work for us to pursue and the stewardship of God's creation as the way to provide for ourselves and others. So stealing is wrong because it rejects God's provision for us. Which then might lead us to another question you may have this morning, which is, is stealing always wrong? What about in situations where you have extreme need? Well, I think as we consider what the Scriptures teach on this, biblically we would need to say that stealing is, without exception, always wrong. But there is a sense in which God shows kindness and understanding to those who do steal. So if you turn to Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 30 and 31, there's a reference there to uh, someone who steals. Proverbs chapter 6 Verse 30 and 31 reads as follows. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his hunger when he is starving. Yet, if he is caught, he must pay sevenfold, though it costs him all the wealth of his house. It's also striking as we think about this question to see how theft was dealt with under the Old Covenant. Now, if you remember, under the Old Covenant, among the people of God there, there is no prison system. So the way in which uh, wrongdoing is dealt with is through different penalties. And some offenses attract the death penalty. For example, murder. But stealing doesn't. If you go back to Exodus 22, you won't turn to it right now, but there's a whole section there on property law. And in that section, if you steal something, there is the possibility of making it right through the repayment of what you stole and through a degree of restitution. And we see that in the Gospels because Zacchaeus, that's what he does, doesn't he? When he realizes what he has done, he puts it right, pays it back, and then he pays restitution. He pays more to show uh, that he is really repentant. And this is one way in which God shows great kindness and the Bible shines through in comparison with other Um, ancient Near Eastern uh, law codes. If you go uh, back in the history and you look at how different cultures treat stealing at the same time in which God is giving his law to his people, what you find is again and again and again in those different law systems, the punishment for stealing was always very severe. You would chop off someone's hand or their life would be taken away. It's a very, very severe punishment. But here the Bible shines through as we see great compassion And we should have compassion also. Stealing is wrong, but there is a possibility of restitution. And we see that in the scriptures. So we've seen that stealing is wrong. Now, let's come to think about some practical implications as we ask the question, how should we not steal? Three areas to think about today. We should not steal in direct theft. That is taking something that has not been given to us. Now, there are lots of obvious ways that can happen, but I want us to focus our attention on less obvious ways. What about the question of stealing electronic goods? 
We can download software, books, or music that we've not paid for. And that's a kind of theft. What about the stealing of ideas that belong to others? Plagiarism. Perhaps um, you're here and you're a student, and there's a temptation that when you have an essay to hand in, you can find something online, or you can borrow something a friend has done, and you can change a few words, change a few sentences, make it your own. But that's not right, because you're taking somebody else's work. In the workplace, we need to be especially careful that we don't take the credit for others' work, that we're careful about honoring intellectual property. That's important in preaching as well. It's been known for preachers to preach somebody else's sermon without ever acknowledging that. That's stealing ideas, isn't it? We shouldn't do that. So don't steal goods, don't steal ideas, pray for preachers, and then do not steal time. Don't steal time. Perhaps particularly as we think here, we might think about stealing our employer's time when we're supposed to be working. So in terms of our timekeeping, do we take the amount of lunch we're supposed to take or we just stretch it out a little bit each side? Do we start late or, or finish early? The whole world of homeworking brings many privileges and they can be very good, but it can also lead to temptations to not be as focused as we might be in the office and just do something around the house and before you know it, you've just done things for an hour or so. In work, do we seek to be focused in meetings as we're there in the meeting? Are we giving our attention to it or are we thinking and looking at other things? Particularly the temptation perhaps of an online meeting is that we do, so we do something else, we turn the video off, we mute the, camp, we mute the audio and we build a shopping list. What about punctuality? This is a challenging one. You can pray for me in punctuality. I'm prone to trying to squeeze things in and just do one more thing before I get to a meeting. And I know that's not good. I'm sorry for that. Forgive me. But when we have avoidable lateness, what are we doing? Well, this is what challenged me this week. We are stealing time from others when they have come to the meeting on time. Punctuality matters. Don't engage in direct theft of goods, of ideas, or of time. But then also, what about deceitful dealings? So we can steal things or time or ideas, but also implied in this idea of theft is deceit. Because when you deceive someone, you are stealing their heart. It's ever so interesting um, that in the Scriptures, uh, about a fifth of the, ref of the uses of the word in Exodus 20.15 of do not steal refer to deceit. They're used in this idea of deceit. And when you deceive someone, they are trusting you, but you're underhand and you steal their heart. You steal that trust in that sense. So we should not be deceitful. We should be honest in our taxes, paying what is due and not hiding things. Romans 13 verse 7 uh, commands us to not be uh, negligent in paying our taxes and not be deceitful in paying our taxes, but rather, Romans 13, verse 7, give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. We should be honest in our agreements. We should not hide key details of a contract, but be open about the key elements of what we're agreeing. And we should be honest as we sell things. So if you're selling a car, and you know it's got an issue, 
Don't hide it and say everything's fine. Be honest um, in your dealings. Don't be deceitful. But then also we might think, we thought about uh, stealing uh, direct theft, we thought about deceitful dealings, but then also we might talk about dishonest charging. Looking to charge more for something than we know that it's worth. Now, now some might say, well, surely the market just sets a just price and I can charge whatever people will pay. But we all know that markets aren't perfect. And it's not always right to charge whatever the market will allow, particularly if you have a rare product or a rare skill set. So let's think very practically. When you're selling your home, are you looking for the highest possible price or for a fair price? And when you agree the sale, as we think about not stealing people's hearts, will you stick to your word, having agreed what you're going to buy for or you're going to sell for? Or will you engage in gazumping or gazundering? We should be honest in our charging. Seek a fair price rather than as much as you could possibly get. So that's how we should not steal. But now, fourthly, let's come to a better way. We've talked about lots of things that we shouldn't do. Now let's talk about what we should do. And here we ask the question, what does godliness look like in day-to-day economic life? As we think about that pattern in Ephesians, having been saved, having put off the old man, having come to faith in Jesus Christ, what does godliness look like in this area? Well, here are some things to think about. It means that we are fair to all people. If you employ others and are responsible to set wages, do you seek to pay a fair wage for people's work? When you set up contracts in business, do you seek to be transparent and open, be fair to all? And really, all of this is grounded in a concern for the good of our neighbor. It's ever so striking. If you, if you go and read some of the confessions that seek to unpack the meaning of the Eighth Commandment, the Westminster Larger Catechism, which is one way of, of understanding the depth of this commandment, says that implied in this commandment is that we might have a concern for our neighbor's prosperity and not just our own. So ask as you do a deal with someone, how does this benefit them, not just me? Now I'm told by those who are engaged in business that if you put together a business deal that benefits both parties, that's the best deal anyway. Because it, it works for them and it works for you. Be concerned about the good of your neighbour. But also, be generous in sharing with those in need. Again, as we think about that pattern in Ephesians, what does it tell us to do? It tells us not to steal Ephesians 4, but instead work. And then those last few verses are so easy to miss that they may have something to share with those in need. So as the Lord God blesses you with more, seek to grow in your generosity with those who have need. And the scriptures would remind us that we should be particularly concerned to provide for those who are believers who have need. Maybe you know uh, that section in in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 25 so well, where where Jesus uh, is speaking of the signs of a true believer. And he says, when you fed me, when you fed someone, you were feeding me. When you gave them something, you were giving it to me. 
And sometimes it's misunderstood, but it's so important to see in verse 40 that Jesus says, a king will reply, this is Matthew 25, verse 40, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. So God there is particularly, the Lord Jesus there is particularly calling us to consider the needs of God's people as we see those in need around us. Be generous in sharing with those in need. But also, be generous in giving to God's work. That's part of our stewardship. Now, maybe you, you know that in the uh, book of, of Malachi, uh, in Malachi chapter 3 and in verse 8, the Lord, uh, the Lord uh, challenges his people to say that they are stealing from him. Malachi chapter 3 verse 8, when the Lord says, last book in the Old Testament, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But I ask you, how are you robbing me? In tithes and offerings, the Lord says. Now, that passage can be misused, and I don't want to misuse it today, but it surely calls us to not hold back in giving to God's work. And if you think about giving, the question that everyone always has is, how much should we give? Should we follow the Old Testament principle of a, of a 10% tithe? Well, that was part of the Old Testament civil and perhaps ceremonial law. And as we look at the New Testament teaching on giving, if you want to think about that, the most substantial passage in the New Testament that speaks about giving is 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And if you go and read that passage, you will see that God encourages regular, proportionate, cheerful, and generous giving. And you won't find a percentage quoted. So what should we give? Well, what we give ultimately is between us and the Lord. The most helpful thing I read about this week from a number of authors who made this point, that generous giving for many Christians, although not all, perhaps particularly those who might be struggling in poverty, but generous giving for many Christians surely cannot be less than the 10% tithe that was there in the Old Testament. That's a helpful way to think about it. Ultimately, giving, whether it's giving to others or it's giving to the Lord's work, is a wonderful, good way of protecting our own souls against the dangers of the love of money. R. Kent Hughes says this, Every time I give, I declare that money does not control me. Perpetual generosity is the perpetual de-deification of money. See what he's saying there? As you give, you declare that money does not control. And as we are generous, we are doing something that is good for our own hearts in stopping money take that first place. But then lastly, as we think about what does it look like to live a better way as we think about our possessions and our money, live for the right kind of treasure. What treasure really matters to you this morning? If I said to you, what is true wealth today? How would you answer it? Seeing that property and money isn't a bad thing, but ultimately, and in terms of what really, really matters, 
We need to remember Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6. Because Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to close with these, in verses 19 to 21, he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Friends, there are no pockets in a shroud. You can't take it with you. But there is a treasure, there is something that is far more valuable than anything that you could count in your bank balance. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's heaven itself. And my plea to you as we come to a close is make sure that you are living for that kind of treasure. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What he is saying is, what you ultimately seek is going to control everything in your life. If it's money, if it's possessions, that will control you. But if it's Jesus Christ, he will control you. And that will be far, far better. So always be invested. Always be invested. Be a hundred times more concerned in seeking Christ than any earthly wealth. Seek to grow in your love for him. Seek to look forward to all that waits for you in the world to come with him. And long for that far more than anything this world can give. And if you're not a Christian... Well, we have been challenged again this morning as we've looked at God's law to see our own hearts. And maybe you know that you live for money and you live for possessions, and that is your God. Maybe you say, I've been a thief, I've been deceitful, and in many ways we could all say that today. But friends, there is great hope, and there is great hope for this reason. Jesus Christ made it clear in his dying moments, that thieves could have eternal life. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he was crucified, and he was crucified with two crosses either side of him. And the two men who hung there were thieves. One man looked to Jesus by faith, turned from his sin, trusted in him and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, To that man, today you'll be with me in paradise. He had nothing left in this world as he hung there, and even his own life was about to be taken from him. But in that moment when he trusted in Jesus, he became richer than Caesar himself because he had eternal treasure. He had Jesus Christ. And that is a promise to any and all who will turn to Jesus, even today. So will you turn to him? Will you trust in him? And will you know that treasure that no one can take away that is Jesus and all that awaits you in the world to come?